Thank you, John, for covering us in the umbrella of God's grace in prayer. Good morning, church, joining us online. Good morning, church, in the building. It's good to be together in the building, even though I feel like, well, it feels a little bit like I'm at a surgeon's convention looking out at you, but that's all right. You look good. 2,000 years ago, in a remote part of the world, an obscure carpenter turned rabbi strolling along the shore of a lake, maybe on a very lovely day like this one, comes across two fishermen, very ordinary men. Peter and Andrew, he says to them, follow me. And their response is as brief as the invitation. It says they dropped their nets and they followed. Later on, he comes across two more fishermen, two brothers, James and John, and that same cryptic, very terse invitation, follow me. And they left their boats and they followed him. One day he comes to a tax collector, kind of a despised profession, a man named Levi. And he spoke those same words, just this, follow me. The Bible says that Levi got up from his booth and left his profession, left his whole way of life behind and followed him. And we wonder, don't we, when we read these stories, at least I do, what else Jesus might have said? Or what else did they know about him before he spoke those words? But the stories don't tell us because I think they just want us to focus on the urgency of that single imperative, follow me. And sometimes people would say yes to the invitation. And for them, it meant lots of things. It meant a life of high adventure and learning. It also meant poverty and suffering. It meant frequent failure, but it also meant meaning and And hope. And for all of them, it meant ultimately death. But everybody was going to die, and they knew that. The real question was whether they had something worth dying for. Sometimes Jesus would offer the invitation, and people would say no. Maybe the no was because of a need for security or comfort. We don't really know because we never hear from those people again. Since the beginning of January, as a church here at MCBC, we've been on this long journey through what is likely the most impactful talk in all of history. Certainly, it is the most extended and insightful message that Jesus gives to his people. The Sermon on the Mount, titled, I think just because Jesus gave it, while he was seated on a hillside by a lake. All of those months, all of those weeks that we've spent together since the beginning of the year point towards this one moment, this final teaching towards this weekend for you. So aren't you glad that you've come? And aren't you glad that you're following us, whether live on Sunday morning or or later in the week or in the weeks ahead? At the very end of Jesus' message, having announced what he called his great good news, the gospel, the good news that life with God, in the presence of God, in the favor of God, in God's care, with God's forgiveness, is now available to anybody, available to you, available to people that the world has written off. Blessed are the poor, he said. Blessed are those who mourn if they want to be. And then Jesus, having brilliantly described what it is that makes a person truly good in the world from the inside out, 
goes on to explain why in the care of his magnificent heavenly father, positioned now uniquely among his people, why it is that you have ultimately nothing to worry about, nothing to be afraid of. Jesus, having articulated how it is really that the love of God expressed through the golden rule is the foundation of reality. Jesus now devotes the final portion, the last bit of his teaching, into clarifying for people the great decision of life. Will you become a disciple of Jesus? Or will you not? Follow me. And this morning what I wanted to do, if we could, is just take any of the fuzziness out of what it is that Jesus was asking. Because there's, there's something fuzzy about that word disciple. It gets used in lots of different ways in lots of different places. It's not the exclusive domain of the church. Many people actually, as they look at the church, think the job of the church is to make Christians. And they think of Christians as people who hold on to a certain set of beliefs, particularly a set of beliefs about Jesus. And as long as they affirm the right beliefs, and they trust those beliefs in the right way. They're, they've been given the golden ticket, their entrance into heaven when they die. And that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The Christian holds the golden ticket, and they hold it because they hold on to a set of beliefs about Jesus. The problem with that more limited understanding of what Jesus was getting on about is that it never really deals with the fundamental choice that Jesus was putting in front of people. Do I actually intend to follow the example of this man? Do I intend to obey what he had modeled and what he had taught? Do I intend to become an apprentice to his way of life? I mean, to be clear, Jesus never said become a Christian to anybody. The word Christian, as many of you will know, is is seldom used in the Bible. In fact, it occurs only three times. And the times that it occurs, it's used in a derogatory way to describe this little band of followers of Jesus. Oh, you Christians, you little Christs. The word disciple, on the other hand, is used some 269 times. And it meant simply what it means for so many people who apprentice in the trades nowadays. It meant a learner. It meant a follower, a student, an apprentice. There was no vagueness about it. There was nothing fuzzy about it. It wasn't cloistered in religious buildings, and it wasn't meant to be hemmed in by a lot of religious language. If you are a learner, you know that you are a learner. If you want to learn how to golf or how to speak Spanish or how to do brain surgery, which is what looks like you've come here to learn today, then you become a student to these things whether in courses or through books or on YouTube, though hopefully you're not learning brain surgery on YouTube. And somebody asks, are you learning to do brain surgery? And, and you don't respond, well, I'm not sure. You know, because you're working hard towards that. You may not be a good student, but you know whether or not you're a student. So the question is, are you a student, an apprentice, a learner, a disciple of Jesus? Have you chosen above all to follow this man, to identify with him, to do what he says, to live the way that you think he would live if he were in your place? Now, this is really important to consider as you think about your answer. Being a student doesn't necessarily mean always being an A student. You're not always 
a good student. That was certainly the case with the first students of Jesus, his first disciples. Sometimes they were decent disciples. Oftentimes they were bad disciples. You can be bad at discipling. And I'm sure, though, we want to be better at it, that Jesus' first concern isn't that you always be A-list disciples, it's that you be disciples. Half the time we see Jesus with his disciples, we see him correcting them. Oh, you of little faith, he says to them. Couldn't you even stay awake with me and pray, even just for the hour? What are you arguing about, you disciples? Who's the greatest? Is there nothing better to talk about? You will deny me three times. Get behind me, Satan. How long must I put up with you? Have I been with you so long, Jesus says, and still you don't know who I really am. Sometimes they just weren't that good at being disciples. But that was of secondary importance to the fact that they'd made a commitment to learning. Think about grade school, if you can go back to that in your memory. In grade school, kids are learning to read. And they divided them up into groups, or at least they used to. Maybe we don't do this anymore. We were divided into groups based on our reading ability. And sometimes the groups were given different names. You're the eagles, because you're soaring. Uh, You're the robins, because you're perched. You're the pigeons. But kids, maybe they didn't quite catch on. They come home and say, guess what, Mom? I'm a pigeon. And Oh, okay. The disciples that we meet in the New Testament are for the most part in the pigeon group. But that's not what was most important. What was most important was that everybody was going to learn, just like in those reading circles, that the kingdom itself was going to open itself up for them because they'd chosen to be with him and to learn from him and to become like him. Of course, in our day, we know that Jesus is no longer physically present, but But in some ways, that opens up a brand new and even richer possibility. Remember, if you've been part of this series week after week after week, part of what Jesus teaches is that the things that are most real are the things that are not seen. He says it a number of times. When you do things, Jesus says, your heavenly Father who is unseen sees the things that you do in secret. He sees, he knows what's not physically visible, what it is that you think and what you feel, what it is that's going on deep inside. That's where ultimate reality lies for Jesus. And it's in those places that he will be with you if you want him to, if you ask him to. The fundamental choice that faces you, Jesus says, is whether you want to be a disciple. And if you do, whether you will apprentice yourself in a relationship of lifelong learning, and maybe you start as part of the pigeons, but one day you will soar. Discipleship is about learning. Discipleship is about obedience. Obedience is one of those words that probably needs to get, I don't know, deconstructed and rethought in our day because we have the wrong ideas about what Jesus taught but we also have some pretty distorted ideas about what obedience means. Rarely is it thought to be a good word in our society. When we say somebody's obedient, I don't think we mean that in a way that's often flattering. Teachers will praise their kids saying, your child is a leader, your child is a risk taker, your child is gifted or talented, but not your child is obedient. 
I'm not sure that obedience is received as a compliment. Obedience school is for dogs and husbands. But but to be obedient, it conjures up somebody who just, don't they feel kind of robotic and compliant and weak-willed? They're conformists. Jesus didn't want any of those things. Jesus didn't say, I've come in order that you would be weak-willed conformists and do whatever I tell you to do for no good reason whatsoever. A disciple, and here's the definition, a disciple is someone who tries to obey Jesus with creativity, with imagination, with initiative, with discernment, with boldness. They try and do it joyfully, not grudgingly. It happens with growing ease over time as the power of God is at work in their life, transforming what what the Apostle Paul called the different members of your body, your little hands and what they do, your little feet and where they go, your little eyes and what they see, and your mouth and what it speaks, the habits that make you up. When that happens, obedience and life and creativity and joy, they flow out of you with increasing ease and with constant humility. And you realize that the only way to do this thing called life is with reliance on the constant daily manna, the feeding of God, with daily provision from God, a reprieve from from the train wreck that my life would become because of ego and sin. With great courage, it will often mean standing in non-compliance, even under great pressure. With great moments of inspiration, when you're gripped by the realization that the only explanation for the, for the unprecedented impact of Jesus in the world is that he is simply the most magnificent human being who ever lived. And it's the greatest opportunity for any human being who ever has come along him to become his friend, to identify with him, to stand alongside him, to be taken up in what he's doing in the world, and that no matter what else happens in life, you, you just can't miss that. And so at the end of this great talk, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presses for a decision from every listener. He says you're at a crossroads. Whether you realize it or not, you will either either choose the narrow gate that is obedience to him in all things. I will seek to understand and, and with his help to do what he says. Or you will choose the broad gate, which is simply everything else. You will either become a good tree that is flowing with so much inner goodness, that ceaseless flow of of thoughts and feelings and intentions and desires that nobody else can see, but, but eventually becomes so good that it issues out of you in words and actions and generosity and makes other people look at you and say, what a good God he must be to think of someone like that. It'll either be that, or you will rot in selfishness and pride and smallness and pettiness. And over time, you become less and less valuable to yourself or anyone else. You stand at a crossroads. 
And this is Jesus. And these are the final words in his talk. So at last we get to them. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who has heard all these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose up, the winds blew and beat against the house, and yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, they're like that foolish man who built his house on the sand. And again, the rains came down and the streams rose up and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. No, let's try it again. It fell with a great crash. Imagine for a second that you applied to and got accepted at the greatest company in the world, and you report to the CEO, not just a brilliant teacher, creative leader, he's deeply invested in the personal development of his employees. And so he says to you, I'm assigning you to lead this project, and I want you to develop competence in this area, and I want you to lead this team with excellence. And I want you to care for the clients that I'm assigning to you. And I believe that you're going to become a magnificent contributor to the future of this company. And you say, well, no, actually, that's not what I intend to do at all. I don't mind being on staff, mind you, and I'm going to like getting the paycheck, and I'm looking forward to the office and the benefits. That's not really what I want to do. How long would you last in that kind of company? Imagine you're selected to become part of the greatest team in the history of sport. The coach is not just a strategic genius and an inspirational figure. He's deeply committed to the performance of his players. And he says, I want you to do these drills every day. I want you to go home at night and watch these tapes and study this playbook and practice these exercises and serve as part of this team. And he say, no, you know what? I like being on the roster and I... I want to wear the championship ring, and I'm looking forward to the colorful uniforms and certainly the endorsements, but I'm not going to do what you ask. How long would you last on the greatest team in the history of the world? Which, by the way, is the Toronto Raptors, is it not? Yeah. Imagine then standing before Jesus one day and trying to explain to him why you never fully intended to do the things that he asked you to do. And maybe you've got good reasons for it. And maybe in his fairness and understanding and compassion, because that's who Jesus is, maybe there'll be lenience for those things, and, and that's just part of ultimate reality. But people far wiser than I am will tell you that selective obedience will never usher you into a life of full confidence or of deep meaning or of lasting joy. Selective obedience just cannot do that. There's a line that's written in the big book of AA. I don't know whether you've ever taken the time to read that. You don't have to be an AA to read the big book. It is filled with genuine insight. 
a Christian movement started in Oxford, England. But this is what it says in these words that I love, written by people who know that they stand literally at a crossroad between life and death. The book says, all these half measures we've taken availed us nothing. We stood at a turning point. And there we asked for God's protection with complete abandon. For there is one who has all the power, and that one is God. May you find him now. Just to make the condition clear, to make the decision as urgent and as undismissible as possible, as Jesus often does, he tells this one last story. Actually, what it is, is it's two stories that are sandwiched together. And to understand them, you kind of you take them, you place them side by side, and you look at the places where they line up. And then you look at the places where they're different. And when you locate the difference, you get the point. In the two stories, everybody builds a house, right? That's not the variable. In fact, as you were reading the scripture, you could probably replace the word house with the word life. Everyone builds a life. Everyone is forming a character. Everybody's building a life. They're constructing it beautifully or badly, on purpose or by accident, with God's help or on their own. But everybody builds a house. Everybody builds a life. We do it mostly by the choices that we make, most of which we don't even spend much time thinking about. How do I spend my time? What are the words that I use when I speak? What are the thoughts that occupy my mind? Where do they come from? What do I do with my money? What people around me are forming and shaping me? What shall day after day after day of my life go towards building? Everybody builds a house. You can't avoid it. You can't abdicate responsibility. You can't slough it off on your parents or your peers or your boss or your family. They're not responsible for the life that you have built. And I'm built mostly not on the things that have happened to me, which so often we focus on. I'm the victim of circumstances. But I am built by the cumulative effect of all those little decisions I'm making or not making all the time. Everybody builds a house. Here's the second constant. Lines up in both stories. Everybody faces a storm. This is not a teaching about storm avoidance. We wish it was, don't we? In the middle of a global pandemic, don't we wish this was about escaping the storm? We'd love to be able to go someplace where it doesn't exist. We'd love to flee the cold, harsh climate of the north when it comes middle of February. I've spent my whole life here in southern Ontario, but I've traveled to the Caribbean. It's beautiful. But this is not a story about fleeing Mississauga for the Caribbean. It's not finding a remote island where there is no COVID infection. There is no way to avoid the storms of life. Not by having a lot of money, not by being more intelligent, not even by having more faith in God and praying more often with more boldness. Jesus says, the storm will come. The rains came down, the waters came up. Everyone faces a storm. When they come, they still surprise us. They shouldn't. We think we're so smart, we're so strong. What the storm really does is speaks to the foundation 
of the house. Foundation of your life. Everybody builds a house. Everybody faces the storm. The variable in the story, you know it, is the foundation. You will either build your life on an apprenticeship to Jesus, identifying with Him and by grace doing what He said. Remember again, the definition of an apprentice is somebody who attaches themselves to a master in order to learn a craft. In the case of Jesus, the craft is life. You want to learn how to live life to the fullest. You apprentice yourself to Him. You will either build your life by apprenticing yourself to Him, or you will in your attitudes and your words and your actions do something else. What's your choice? I need to tell you, using the language of the big book again, Half measures avail us nothing. And you see, that's, that's my problem. I would prefer half measures. I prefer a little bit of surrender when I'm feeling like it. A little bit of holiness when I'm so inclined. A little bit of religious activity when it strikes me well. But all within my own convenient timelines. A little bit of devotion, a little bit of generosity. My life with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top when it needs some seasoning. I'd like a little bit of help when I need it from God and a little bit of distance from God when I prefer it. But you can't live in half a house. It's striking, you know, when Jesus tells this final parable in the Sermon on the Mount. But he doesn't say, here's the story of a good man and an evil man. How does he describe them? The wise man and a foolish man. I think Jesus kind of knew this about us. Most of us don't choose to become evil in our actions or in our choices. Life just kind of happens as parents. Parents know this. When kids do something they shouldn't do, something destructive, something foolish, something infuriating, parents will always ask them the one question that probably is the stupid question at the moment. You remember the one? Why did you do that? (laughs) Why did you do that foolish thing? Why did you cut your sister's hair until she was bald in order to make a little nest in a styrofoam cup for birdies? Why did you shove Flintstone vitamins so far up your brother's nose that we didn't see them until we took them in for x-rays months later? Why did you stick a glass light bulb in your mouth that was so big you couldn't open your mouth wide enough to get it out? By the way, my family are here. They did none of those things. Why did you do it? Why? What, what, what were you thinking? Parents always ask that question. And you know what the answer is, right? Why did you do that? I don't know. Yeah. It just happened. Why did you build your house on such a flimsy foundation? Why did you build it on the sand? I don't know. It's foolish. Nobody gets married and plans on getting divorced. Nobody meets somebody at the office and plans on having an affair. Nobody has a child and plans on a life of neglect or hurt or abuse. 
Nobody plans to go through life bitter or joyless or in despair. Nobody plans on living in hell. It just happens. I don't know. Rock or sand. To follow or not to follow. It's the great commitment that God sets in front of everybody. And he sets in front of us those words today from the lips of Jesus. It's, it's so important, this commitment. If it's made, that it be made soberly and clearly and, and not in a moment of temporary emotion. That happens sometimes in churches. But when the emotion fades, so does the commitment. Jesus' advice on this, given in the gospel, the building project, is always to count the cost. Before you decide, count the cost. Do it the best way you can. So I want to give our last couple of minutes just to doing that. Because really there are two costs to count. One of them is the cost of discipleship. That wonderful phrase by a German Christian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The cost of discipleship. And I'm going to ask you right now, in a moment of decision, to count the cost of being a follower of Jesus. There will be a cost. What does it mean to surrender your will to him? What does it mean to lay down your ego, your reputation? Very often there will be one thing or something in particular in your life, a habit, a relationship, something that you will have to give up. Maybe it's around money. Maybe it's around sexuality. It's often that way for people. Anger, words, habits. Now the cost is not just that I will try grudgingly every day really hard through my own willpower to follow Jesus. No, that's not the cost. The idea is that I will come to identify with him so much and through his grace arrange my life around the practices and relationships and rhythms that he set in place that wellsprings of inner goodness begin to flow out of me. It's a lot like getting married in some ways or having a child. There's so much that you don't know about either of those things at the beginning. But as best you can, you count the cost of being married or starting a family. And hopefully you grow in the rhythms and the grace needed to be a spouse or a mother or a father. It's the cost of discipleship. But what doesn't get talked about as much is the cost of non-discipleship. What will you pay for not following me? I mean, for me, that that would be a crushing burden of chronic disappointment and aloneness and isolation of enslavement to my own ego and and image and reputation. It'd just be a soap opera every day. Fear, greed, fear, greed. Well, I get what I want. I didn't get what I want. For me, the cost of discipleship, it just feels so exceedingly small compared to the cost of non-discipleship. And with that clearly in front of us, with minds as clear as God will allow you to be in this moment, let me set the question before you again. Will you follow this man? This is where your heart maybe starts pounding a little bit. Where the mind starts racing. When Jesus was teaching the crowds, something happened in the souls of people who were just sitting there. 
something that may start to happen for you now. This is just the way that God works. I know he does. Your heart starts racing. Your mind starts challenging. You think, this is it. This is finally it. This is what I've been waiting for. To be cleansed and forgiven of all of that stupid stuff I've been dragging around with me. To know God, to have a life that exists beyond worry or fear. Not to be a slave all the time. To my desire for sex or safety or money or reputation. To be a part in my own tiny way of this incredible thing that God is doing in the world. To have confidence beyond death. I must I must have it. I must have it for myself. And I would rather have what this man has and give up everything else in the world than have everything the world offers and give up on this man. So I have made up my mind. I will pay the price. I'll do what, I, what he says. I'll go where he asks. And I'll be what he says I ought to be. Have you done that? Where do you stand today? We want to give you a little bit of time to count the cost in your own way. To ask God about this. Again, please don't hear this as a question of am I a Christian or not? Am I a believer or not? Will I get to heaven or not? Will you follow him? If you want to, those of you who are joining us online, along with the invitation to the online services, you receive copies of the meeting or the the message notes. Those of you who came into service got them today. At the very bottom, there is a little perforated section I'm going to ask you to turn with me to that right now. I'm going to ask if you will listen to the words as I read them and as they're written on the sheet in front of you. Here's the decision. I'm enrolling myself in the school of Jesus. I make him my master. I commit to being with him each day and learn from him how to live like him. And I do this humbly. I do it in the shadow of the cross and in the light of the resurrection. That's the decision. And ask the worship team to come and join me here on the stage. I want to give you a, a couple of minutes to pray and reflect on that. Maybe you feel like this is a decision you made a long time ago. But this is a rallying point in your life. And so you want to sign it as a way of affirming This is the trajectory of my life. I'm still on that path. Maybe you just want to fold it up and keep it in your Bible on the nightstand if it would help. If if that's not you, don't worry about it. But if you're new to this thing, new to exploring faith, and you've never really thought about this as an option, maybe you want to take this home with you. Have a little bit of time to think about it. Eventually, when you're ready to make the decision, you just sign it. Maybe have somebody else witness it. Some setting that would serve you well when you're ready to make the decision. Maybe some of you, you thought of yourself as a Christian for many years, but you've never really gotten clear on this above everything else. Yep, to obey Him daily is the priority of my life. And if it would help you to sign it in the next moment, let me invite you to do that. Put a date on it, and if you want it to be witnessed, I'll stick around after the service and 
And people who are on our prayer team will be here for you as well. Gang, all of the months that we have spent in the sermon listening to those amazing words of Jesus lead us to this. This is a joyful moment for the people of God. We're devoting ourselves to doing exactly what Jesus asked by giving our most honest response. I'm going to ask you to take a moment now just to look at those words, to bow your heads with me, to close your eyes if you want to. Just talk to God. Give Him your response as honestly as you can to this grand invitation.